I think we can all agree on the horrific nature of retaliation and revenge when we see it at a, at a national level. For example, um, it wasn't that long ago in 1994, if you remember in Rwanda, uh, when ethnic uh, uh, tensions and rivalries uh, exploded over into a hundred days of terror, uh, particularly from the Hutus to the Tutsis, where uh, they estimate that close to a million people died uh, in, in absolute spilling over of revenge and retaliation. We can see that and say, well, that's a terrible thing. But I think we're more hard-pressed to see the danger of our own desires for personal revenge and retaliation at the individual level. But let me ask you, um, what do you do as a matter of normal response? What do you do when people wrong you? What's the first reaction from you when people insult you or criticize you or uh, tarnish your reputation? I mean, do, do you tend to uh, want to get even? I mean, how great is the desire to get even? Or how great is the desire to have your name vindicated and cleared? You know, Jesus has been speaking about this greater righteousness that is to display the uniqueness of God's kingdom. Uh, this greater righteousness in this passage is seen in non-retaliation. In other words, to personal offenses, that when you personally offend, that you as the citizen of the kingdom do not retaliate in kind and respond in kind. That, that, that the, the natural man demands redress when attacked or criticized. But the citizen of the kingdom doesn't demand his rights. But rather he delights in the cross of Jesus Christ and all that the gospel has both done for us and is doing to us. So two things I just want to hit today fairly hard, is, is this call for Jesus to the, to the Christian to avoid personal retaliation, to avoid personal retaliation when personally offended, and, and to pursue the good of those who have offended us. Now, this is clearly, this you will not find in any self-help book. I mean, this is, as, as Keith said, it's otherworldly. It's an inverted wisdom you know, that only the Christian can understand, and it makes sense. It's kind of like if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. If you want to, if you want to be rich, well, then give it away. You know, if you want to be great, then, then serve these people. It's that inverted paradoxical wisdom of God that when, you're, when you've been redeemed, it makes sense. You get it. But when you're not redeemed... It is very dangerous, and, and you run from it as it's just labeled as undoable. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. We'll read 38 to 42. We're going to look at this idea of avoiding personal retaliation and pursuing the good of those who have done us bad. Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So, so again, we keep seeing this contrast right between Jesus' teaching and the Pharisees' teaching. 
And, and, and we see it here in this, in this passage, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is known as the lex talionis. It's the law of retaliation. It's, the, it's one of the oldest laws. Yeah, it, it's, it's a law upon which all law is built. All civil, penal, international law is a, of reparation and equity is built upon this law. It's a law that you'll find in Deuteronomy, Exodus, and Leviticus. God gave this law to the people so that they would be governed rightly by it. Now, when you read this law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, to us moderns, it sounds archaic. It sounds barbaric. It seems kind of unsophisticated. But, but I, I think it's a just law, and I actually think it's a merciful law. I think it's, let's start with mercy first. It's merciful in the sense that it restricts personal revenge. I mean, it's, it's, man has a propensity to strike back harder when struck. And, and this limits it. It's meant to control excessive application of punishment. So contrast this with Sharia law of Islam. So for the thief, he loses his hand. Seems a bit disproportionate to me. And this is trying to bring civility and restraint so that that normal progression of escalating retaliation of the blood feuds and tribal wars would cease. It was meant to bring mercy to a situation. But it is a just law in the sense that it was to be administered not by the one offended who can rarely bring impartial justice, but it's meant to be administered in the courts by impartial judges. And it's a just law because whether you're rich or whether you're poor, the punishment's the same. Whether you have a position in life or you don't have a position, the justice is the same. So it was both merciful and just. But the Pharisees, when they were teaching this at the time of Jesus, they were teaching that this was the individual right of every person. They moved it from the courtrooms back into the personal arena. In fact, the Pharisees taught that they would insist upon the right that the offended would be the one to bring about the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth on the one who had been hurt. So, so, so they, they made it much more, uh, much more personal revenge, retaliation, and it moved towards fostering a bitterness, a malice, a hatred, really a disunity among the people of God. And that's why Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. In other words, he's calling us to avoid personal retaliation and revenge. Now, I, I do want to say this. Your need for justice, your desire for justice that you feel when some third party is injured or, or you have taken a hit in some respect that was unjust, that desire for justice is a mark. It's evidence that you have been made in the image of God. The animal kingdom does not know this. Instinctually, it may defend, but it doesn't have an understanding of right and wrong, justice and injustice. The problem is that we as fallen creatures, we look at justice being served as to usually how it benefits us, how it serves us. We're not always looking for justice to be served for justice sakes, justice sake or for the glory of God or for the benefit of a third party, but we're really looking to protect our interests. We want justice to be served for our benefit and for our help. Now, it, it, to get a kind of an unvarnished view of yourself, you can actually look at your children and, and, and when your children fight or battle. So, for example, when, when our kids were young and one would take a toy from the other, uh, there was no 
there was no proportionate response. It was all out war. It was as if life was threatened. And, and it, was, it was absolutely disproportionate to the situation. I mean, that's the way we are. I mean, when you look at yourself, how quickly do you respond in anger when you've been wronged? I mean, how quickly do you seek to defend your name when you've been criticized? I mean, how much do you... Don't ask yourself, how often have I retaliated? But ask yourself, how often have I wanted to retaliate? And if I were given the chance, I would have. You know, many of us, I think, are, you know, we kind of espouse that view from John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy once was in a, a battle with his political foes, and they said, have you buried the hatchet? He said, oh, I've buried the hatchet. I've just marked where I buried the hatchet. He knows, he knows where to go to get that hatchet back. And for many of us, that's what we do. Oh, we forgive, but we don't forget. And we remember, and when we need to, we'll bring that back up again. Well, Jesus scorns this value. He scorns this attitude. He says, no, you have to avoid personal retaliation. In fact, if you notice in the text, he gives this call to pursue good for those who have offended you. In fact, he says it this way. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, this verse alone has had gallons of ink spilled on trying to describe it. Do not resist the one who is evil. Uh, for many, particularly of the Anabaptist tradition, they see this as the kind of the hallmark text for pacifism, that this is the text that you would go to uh, so that you would not engage any sort of conflict or resistance, even, even when it's against your property, or even for some extremists, against a third party, an innocent third party. This has been used uh, no less than Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy, the Russian novelist. From this verse, he determined that it was a sin and, 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 and wrote about it so that it was a sin to be in the government, to be in the police force, to be in the armed services. That this warranted absolute non-engagement, non-resistance against any evil. Now, I, I don't think that can be substantiated. If, if you want to prove that, I don't think you can go to this verse. I, I think this verse is speaking more to personal retaliation. It's not speaking to nations or governments on, on whether resistance should be affected or not, or what is a just war or not. I don't think this verse even speaks to the nature of the death penalty or just war. It's speaking to personal revenge against personal offenses. And I think we're going to see that in the four, the four illustrations that Jesus gives us from 39 to 42. But I'm not answering what it is. What does it mean to say, do not resist the one who is evil? Well, I don't think Jesus is contradicting that passage in Leviticus. I don't think Jesus is, um, is undermining the law at all. I think he's speaking to the nature of not exercising personal retaliation or personal offense in kind. In other words, don't resist the one who is evil, the one who has done malice or has intended to harm you, that you are not to respond in the same measure. I, I don't think he's saying to ignore justice. I don't think he's saying to be unconcerned with evil. But as far as it applies to you, that you're not to respond. It doesn't mean the government doesn't respond. It doesn't mean you don't serve to, to help a, a third party that's being. But I'm speaking about you personally, that there is an abdication of rights here. Don Carson New Testament theologian, a contemporary New Testament theologian, writes this. And before you want to argue with it, just listen to it and I'll try to explain it. He says, what Jesus is saying in these verses, more than anything else, is that his followers have no rights. 
And I, I would, I would um, add no earthly temporal rights. It says they do not have the right to retaliate and bring their vengeance. They don't have the right to their possessions, nor to their time or money. Even their legal rights may sometimes be abandoned. That the Christian is to be absolutely charitable and um, uncalculatingly benevolent to those who harm them. Uh, Keith brought up 1 Peter 3.9. I think Paul did exegete this passage in his passage from Romans chapter 12. Let me read it to you. He says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought of what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Here's what he says. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's the role to bring good to those who mean us harm. And I think these four illustrations that Jesus gives us kind of explains that a bit. So let's just go through each one. I, I've called you to avoid retaliation against those who have wronged you. Again, I'm not speaking about the role of government in declaring just war or the death penalty. I'm speaking about how you personally have been offended by someone in your world. I'm not speaking about the person who's the third party, the child that's being hurt. We defend them. Speaking about you personally. And we, we personally are to pursue. Now look with me at these examples in 39. First, if you've been insulted, that we bear patience. We bear with patience and forgiveness. Look at 39. He says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I don't think this means when you're punched in the face that you turn the other side of the face to be punched again. I don't think it's calling for that. I think it's speaking to the insults that we bear from one another. Why do I say that? Well, you notice that Jesus specifies the right cheek. Now, most people are right-handed. So a right-handed man cannot slap the right cheek of another person except with the back of the hand. And the back of the hand was an unusual assault and affront to their person. Now, there were fines to slap a man. It was a sign of disrespect. But to, to do a backhanded slap, was issued double the fines because of it being an affront to the character. And so Jesus is saying this, that if someone slaps you on the right cheek, if they insult you, that you are to turn the other cheek. It's not you're to physically turn the other cheek. It's you are to not retaliate to the insult that you've received. In other words, if someone said a word or two about you, they've tarnished your reputation, they've thrown your name under the bus, that we don't respond in kind to that. We don't respond with a word of our own or drop a delicate morsel about them that the person may not know to kind of level the scales and to kind of balance the scales. But rather, we don't respond. Now, now it's interesting. I don't mean to avoid truth here. I don't mean to deny truth that if something untrue is spoken that we shouldn't say anything. We should. We can. In fact, Jesus, in John 19, when he was before Caiaphas, the high priest, he was slapped on the face. And he said, and what have I done for that? So there is a place to respond, but we don't respond in kind, in the same measure, to those who have insulted us. In fact, Paul himself said, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. It's the Lord who judges me. 
So, so there's that freedom to not respond. The Christian, rather than retaliating with words of the same measure, rather stands in a posture of patience and ready to forgive. Now, granting forgiveness to someone doesn't mean they don't bear the consequences of their sin, but it just it's preparing for the restoration and the repair of a relationship by you not retaliating. Now, I often use Carol as an example for our marriage because I've been benefited greatly by her. I can be bold, ignorant, arrogant, and a host of other things that make me cause, that cause me to often say things that I probably regret saying. Uh, Carol has been very good at non-retaliation, doesn't say anything. It's hard to fight alone. It's hard to fight when someone just doesn't respond to that kind of behavior. And I, I credit much of the marital harmony I have to her capacity to not respond to many of the foolish things that I say. There's value in this, that the Christian is called to be non-retaliatory, particularly when you're insulted, to bear patiently, to recognize judgment from God is the issue, not judgment from other men. But look at the second example he gives us. He calls us to not fight for our rights. You see him say, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, the tunic was the garment closest to your flesh. It was your shirt. The cloak was the outer coat. It was a heavier coat um, that went on the outside. He says, if anyone would literally sue the shirt off your back, Jesus is saying, give your cloak as well. Now, let me explain this. Um, the cloak was actually a protected right of every Israelite. Why? Well, because the cloak for many people, particularly the poor, was really their, their warmth against the cool of the night. And, and according to the law in Leviticus, you could not keep a man's cloak overnight. You had to return it to him. Even if he said, hey, I guarantee I'll come back, and, and he gives you your cloak, he gives you his cloak as a guarantee that he would make payment, you had to give it back to him that night so he would have something to protect himself with at night. And Jesus is saying, if he sues you for your shirt, give him your cloak as well. In other words, don't demand your rights. Don't stand on this right that you have and say, this is mine, you can't have it. That, that, that there is this call, this inverted logic of God to even give them more than they ask. And it caused me to think about in Hebrews chapter 10, if you remember that chapter, the, the Jewish the uh, Christians were being persecuted for helping those in prison. And here's what the writer writes. He says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you, because of your help for the Christians in prison, in prison, he says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you had better and lasting possessions. In other words, here's what they're doing. They are literally helping the Christians in prison, and because of their association with the Christians, they are suffering by having their own property plundered by, the, by those who are against Christianity. And they joyfully accepted it. They, they didn't stand on their rights. They, they didn't claim unfair, unfair. They joyfully accepted it. Why? Because the Christian knows. Nobody can take from us that which is most near and dear, that relationship with God that's been established in Christ. Everything we have is temporary. Everything you have is, is going to either break down, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be ruined, it's going to be taken to the junkyard. Everything we have, there is nothing that they can take from us that is valuable and eternal. They can take the property, they can take the possessions, they can take our lives. All these things are temporal. So the Christian is able to not fight so diligently for his rights. 
Uh, look at the third example it gives us, because it calls for a greater sacrifice. Even in the midst of what we would consider unfair treatment, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Okay, now, now at this time, of course, Rome occupied Israel. And Rome had the law that they could conscript a private citizen to carry their military equipment. It was from the Persians, who often did that to move mail around their empire. And so the, a Roman could conscript a private citizen and have him carry his equipment for one Roman mile or a thousand paces, but no more. Now, of course, you see this. It, it expanded beyond just military equipment. You even remember in Simon the Cyrene, when Jesus was being crucified, he was conscripted and forced to carry Jesus' cross. So that's what they would do. And Jesus is saying, if that happens to you, I mean, you're walking along, you're doing business, boom, you get conscripted, you say, you've got to carry this. He's saying, don't just go 1,000 paces, go another Roman mile. Go beyond what you're asked to do. Even though it's maybe not fair, it's injurious to your schedule, it's a problem for your life, just go the extra mile. Do it for the glory of God. Go beyond what is expected of you. I, this is incredibly difficult to do. I, I mean, the, the, the natural man can no way do this. They'd be grumbling and complaining. We can't do the dishes for someone, let alone to go an extra mile for a Roman soldier. But that's what Jesus is saying. Again, he's giving us this inverted logic, this inverted wisdom. It made me think about, um, I know it's out, Les Miserables, but I, I remember seeing the older film, and the scene that struck me was when, uh, when the, the star, I'm going to explain, the star comes, and, and you know, he's caught, he's escaped from prison, and he runs into the priest, and the priest takes him in his home and feeds him, gives him a bed, and, and, and treats him very, very kindly. And of course, in the middle of the night, he gets up and he steals the silver from this priest, and of course, he takes off, and uh, police catch the man, bring him back, and, um, and the police are ready to say, hey, this is your silver, we found the man that stole it. And, and the priest could have had his head on a platter right there. And he said, hey, you forgot this. And he gave him more silver. And, and, and he did this tremendous act of kindness because of how desperate the man was. He, he showed this unusual kindness. And, and that act, of course, affects him such that it, it marks him for the rest of the movie and the rest of the play, uh, the book by Victor Hugo. So, so this, this unkindness to people that don't deserve it. That's what the Christian is called to do. It's profound. But, but look at the last illustration here with me. It's calling for a generosity beyond measure. It says in 42, he says, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, I, I don't think Jesus is debating here about the wisdom or foolishness of lending or borrowing. I think he's speaking about this unique generosity to all people. That, 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 that the Christian in the kingdom of God, has the freedom to be generous with, with all people. Now, I know in your mind you're thinking right now, you can't do this stuff, Tom. I mean, really. If you just gave to everybody, if you gave the coat and the shirt, you'd be naked. If you gave all your money away, you'd be destitute. You'd be a problem for other people. Before you too quickly excuse yourself, I would just ask you, when was the last time, in the last week, what were you asked to do? I mean, have you really been, have you been hit often? I mean, in the last month, have 10 people asked you for stuff? Five people? Two people? Is anyone? 
I mean, I mean, try not to write these things off as undoable just yet. He, he's not calling for lacking discretion in the giving of money. Obviously, I've been, I've been um, you know, a, a, a beggar will come to me and ask for money. What should I do? I mean, there's discretion that has to be exercised. To give money that's going to be turned into drink or drug is no good. We all admit that. It will only lead to greater evils. So discretion needs to be exercised clearly. But what he's speaking about here is this attitude that we have, this readiness to be generous. You know, Charles Spurgeon said that the Christian can never be the miser. He's been given too much. He's been offered too much. Why would we ever be kind of tight-fisted with people? So when you look at these things, you look at this avoidance to personal retaliation, and you know how, how it just galls you when your name has been tarnished, you've been gossiped about, you've been insulted or attacked, or your rights have been infringed, how quickly you are to defend. And Jesus is saying, take that quickness. Don't retaliate, but move in goodness to them. I mean, if you've been insulted, be patient and forgiven. If, if, if your rights have been infringed upon, just back up and just rest. Don't demand so quickly your rights be met. If you've, been, if you've been treated in an undeserving fashion, then give more than you have been asked to give. And in terms of generosity, be ready, be available, be open to be generous to those in need. That's what Jesus is calling for. This is the mark of the man of the kingdom. Now, I know you look at this and you think, this is clearly unachievable. It's, it's even, it's even, we can even slide all the way because we are such good justifiers. We can even say it's harmful. You know, to, to return good to someone who's evil, just, it just promotes further evilness is what it does. Well, I, I don't think so. I, I don't think so at all. Um, so here's what I want to do. I, I want to give you just five thoughts to consider in terms of promoting the goodness and, and trying to wrestle through some of these difficult issues. Number one, I would ask you to consider the complexity of Jesus' words. And here's what I mean by this. The, the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount is loved by people, but precious few understand it. Everybody that tells you how much they love the Sermon on the Mount, my first thought is, you haven't read it yet. You, you cannot love this casually. It's too demanding. It's too lofty. It's, it's, it's absolutely, it's like jumping into a, a frigid pool. It just wakes you up and you realize, I'm not doing any of this. As a, and I'm a Christian. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, wow, we have got some major overhaul to do. So, so, so two errors I want to avoid. I, I don't want to make this into a new law for you. I don't want to be legalistic with this and, and cheeks and coats and forced labor and in generosity, become a new code of law that you have to follow. And if you don't do it, God doesn't love you. I don't want to do that. You know, any time you can literalize a text that leads to greater evil, you probably haven't interpreted it right. I mean, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that, that great preacher of mid-20th century at Westminster in, in London, he, he said, if an interpretation leads you to a ridiculous position, then it's probably wrong. And, and, and this can lead you to destitution, it can lead you to nakedness, it can lead you to tyranny. So, I mean, just walking out these principles as if they were just prescriptions is going to be problematic. At the same time, I would not want to treat Jesus' words as just starry-eyed utopianism, that, that he's, some, he's some hippie at Haight-Ashbury in the 60s smoking dope, and he's just spouting out this stuff that's just as, it's great for print, but you can't live it. I wouldn't want to go there. 
Because Jesus Christ has said it, and he said it to be followed. I'd like to work through these things. And so to consider the complexity of these words, you can't do it between your two ears. I think you need the counsel of brothers and sisters in Christ. You need the leadership of the church. You need one another to say, how does this apply? You know, we know, so the son keeps borrowing money. He's got a drug problem. Do you lend it to him? He says, he comes up to you. He said, hey, mom, hey, dad, you guys are Christians. Give to the one who begs for me. I'm begging from you. I need, you. I need, I need help. And you know what it's going to be? What do you do? You just say no, casually. No, he's burned me three times. Is that become the rule that he's burned you before? That's not in here. Wisdom's needed. Or, or, or the woman that just gets insulted upon and insulted upon by her husband. Just beaten, 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 beaten. Does she keep turning the other cheek? How do we handle that situation? It's very complex. Karen and I had a beautiful woman friend from Romania when we were in Austria. And um, we gave her a coat in Austria in the spring. It was often rainy and, and very cold. And, um, and so she... She said, I already have a coat. I said, well, we know that. It was a kind of an old, it was an old Romanian coat. You can see it. You said, That's from Romania right there. And it was well-worn, but it wasn't, it wasn't conducive for the spring in Austria. And, um, and so we gave her the coat. She said, I can't take it. And she took us to the text and said, well, if I have two coats, I have to give one away. And literalizing this and, you know, trying to explain and help her to understand it's not wrong to have two coats. That's what Jesus was saying. So, so the complexity of Jesus' words here need the body. We need one another, the, the wisdom and counsel of others to help. You know, I, I want you to walk out of this sermon thinking, like if you have a situation and you have someone that needs money, that you'd grab a brother or sister and say, what would you do in this situation? What other scriptures come to bear that can kind of guide us in this? It isn't so easily decided. And I hope that's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to drive to you. It's a complex issue. And because it's complex, it doesn't mean we can take a pass. Secondly, I would have you to consider to delight in the gospel. Delight in the gospel. Listen, all of these difficult sayings that we've been hitting from Jesus all flow out of Matthew 5.17. The whole section is flowing out of Matthew 5.17 where he says, I've not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. And when Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law, he's saying, I have walked in absolute perfection before the Father, and I've now established you in a righteousness that is alien to you, but I'm giving it to you because of my abundant grace and mercy. And so Jesus has lived in a measure that through faith we are now accepted by God. That you and I don't need to strive to keep this law so as to keep God on our side. And that if you're striving in this life to do everything right, you're failing to to live in light of these precious words, I've come to fulfill the law. Our, Our obedience to working through these texts is out of the sheer delight in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And if we don't delight in the gospel, this will be a thousand pounds on your back. And it will crush you as you try to keep it. And what you'll do is you'll just walk away from it. You won't read it anymore, or you'll just justify it out of context. Well, you can't do this. He didn't mean it. He just meant be kind to people. And that's what, that's what the theological liberals will do. It just meant to be kind to people. Well, no, it doesn't mean that. It means more than that. It's more specific than that. But if you don't delight in the gospel, this is an anchor 
and your boat's going down, and this will sink you fast. But if you have the gospel, that, that righteousness that has been earned for us, that our obedience is out of delight in God for Christ, then it isn't the burden. It's a joy. It's that inverted wisdom that just captivates us that someone would have the wisdom to say such things. And then thirdly, I would say you need to reckon yourself dead to this life. You need to reckon yourself dead. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul writes in Galatians chapter, or um, Colossians. That's what he used to wear when it snowed. Um, he said in um, Galatians 2.20, um, sorry, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, Paul sees the Christian life to be one of death first. We've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And while we live according to the flesh, we live by faith. In other words, the natural man screams for revenge just as a baby cries for food. But the Christian man has died to the things of this world. In, in, in uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we set our mind on things above, no longer on things below. So the Christian who understands he's been redeemed, he's been delivered, he's now been adopted as a child of God, he has fellowship with God in Christ and will forever be a child of God, we don't fight for our rights, we don't fight and demand for what we're entitled to. We are free now to let those go. If we don't reckon ourselves dead to this world, then we will live for this world. We'll defend the things of this world. We'll find great and deep and overjoy in the things of this world. So that's what I mean by reckoning ourselves dead to this world. This is something you have to think about. That, that when your name is implicated or your positions have been taken or you've been threatened, who are you in God, not who am I in this world? If you have been bought and redeemed by Christ and you're his, and not one of those given to him will be lost, then, then it's much easier to give of things. You know, George Mueller was a, you know, he was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon in England, German descent, but lived in England and ran orphanages, a man known for his great faith. He wrote these words, about dying to himself, he said, there was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller and his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. He died to the world, its approval or censure. He died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and my friends. And since I have studied, and since then, I have studied only to show myself approved to God. What freedom there would be to no longer Submit ourselves to the fear of man and to no longer live on the accolades of other people, to no longer worry about markets, to no longer worry about jobs, to no longer about what people think about you. Are you approved by God? Are you reckoning yourselves dead to this world but alive to God in Christ? Boy, what freedom there would be. You could do these. You could do these. And, and then fourth, to entrust yourselves to God. That you look at God as the perfect judge, perfect in every way. He will bring about a fair and a complete justice. That if you are being abused, if you are being taken advantage of, if someone has done you a, dern, a bad turn, if someone has spoken about you, if someone has thrown your name under the bus, 
Entrust yourselves to God. The justice that you can create on your own will never satisfy you. It can never meet its obligations. But God's justice is perfect, and it's fully satisfying. So when insulted, when treated poorly, appeal to God. That's what Jesus did. It sustained Jesus. We, We read in 1 Peter 2, when he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. I mean, to consider that God is fully able. Every stone will be overturned. Every word will be reviewed. There will be a perfect and thorough going of life before God. That if you are ever taken advantage of, you trying to mete out a righteous punishment and retaliation, revenge, You'll never be satisfied. It'll only add further to your pain. You entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. And you can rest in that. And then last, last is to look for the fruit that will be born. Look for the fruit that will be born. In other words, what I'm saying is when you avoid personal retaliation and you pursue the good of those who have offended you, you are displaying a different set of values to the world. You're showing the reality of a kingdom. You are doing something that the offender cannot understand. He doesn't have the categories for it, but it will leave him stunned. And for you to to avoid retaliation and even to be willing to suffer, still seeking to do good for the one causing the suffering, you display the gospel. You reveal the gospel. That's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ suffering from us, doing us good while suffering, not retaliating. Even though he had legions of angels he could bring down, didn't do it. Suffered willingly, voluntarily, in order for our good. I think about the centurion. When he saw that example, the centurion, when he saw Jesus, he said, truly, he is the Son of God. I think about Paul and Stephen. You know, Paul and Stephen. So when Stephen is being stoned, Paul is there. That had an impact on him. It can't not have an impact on people. I remember two, uh, at least according to Fox's Book of Martyrs in Ancient History, uh, two Christian women, Perpetua and Felicitas, two women Christians who were killed for their faith, and they died with such faith, their executioner came to faith and was summarily killed for his faith. Uh, but, but there's modern stories. That, I don't know if you remember this, back in... It was back in 1984, a man uh, by the name of Carrier, a, a young boy, uh, on the news in Florida. He had been abduct, uh, abducted. He had been tortured, uh, cigarette burns in his face, stabbed and shot in the head and dropped in the Everglades. And by God's sheer mercy, survived. Never caught the man. Uh, he grew up and became a youth minister. Well, the man who committed the crime was uh, Richard McAllister, and um, he was exercising his right to retaliate and revenge. This young boy who he abducted, his father had fired him from a job, and so he was going to get him back by killing his son. Didn't kill him, but tried to. And uh, at 77 years old, blind, in a Florida nursing home, um, he was pursued once more. He was always thought to be a suspect in the case. They never had the evidence to prove it. And so even though it was well past the statute of limitations, the actual police officer who did the investigation went 
and asked him one more time, and he confessed to it. And uh, the police officer went and told the carrier, the young boy that had been abducted, and uh, he began visiting him. And uh, he began visiting him and reading the scriptures to him and preaching the gospel to him. And the man uh, came to place his faith in Jesus Christ and uh, considered this young boy that he, uh, he had abducted his best friend in the newspapers in the New York Times. Fantastic. You, you, you don't have the categories for it again. And, and, yet, and yet, so the revenge and retaliation led to great abuse and harm, and yet, and yet that person responded with kindness and goodness by preaching the gospel to them, suffering well. And it eventuated in this man turning from death to life. So these are profound words, and um, I would ask you to consider them deeply and, and solemnly, and perhaps with, with others. How best can we walk in light of these things? We avoid retaliation, and, and we pursue the good. Can you imagine if we just practiced this just in our marriages, just in our homes, and, and, then, and then drop it out another level, just in our churches, and then, and then with, even within the community, just your personal relationships. Let, let me pray for us, and then um, I'd like to invite you to the table. Father, thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have given to us in your son Jesus, who modeled this with perfection, the quintessential man, God-man. Father, would you... Uh, Take the seeds of this truth and plant them deep within the souls of these people, my own Father. And would you grant us grace out of the overflow of our delight that we might walk in his steps following Christ in this measure. And may we see the fruit born in our marriages and our families and our and even in our church life. And, but may you receive the glory for it. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.